All right, John chapter 6. There we are. So in this passage that we're looking at today, verses 1 through 15 of John 6, Jesus is going to continue to do what he has been doing. (laughs) He's going to continue to argue that he is the Son of God. He's going to continue to argue to us who he is. But he's not going to do it through verbal argument. He's going to do it through a miraculous sign. He's going to do it through a powerful demonstration that is superior to any human ability. And this miraculous sign is the famous feeding of well over 5,000 people with fish sandwiches. I figure if you put the fish and the bread together, you got a fish sandwich. But to really understand what this miracle is about, you need to understand what the purpose of signs are. And we've been learning about what the purpose of signs are from the very beginning of the Gospel of John. But signs, uh, D.A. Carson said, um, you got to know the significance <laughs> of the signs, right? I like that, kind of a nice play on words there. But they're pointers to Christ, aren't they? The signs are pointers to Christ. So we need to ask, what are they pointing out (laughs) about Christ? And we already know what they're pointing out, but let me remind you, they're pointing us to who Christ is. And I I say this um, just because we can so easily deviate from the point of these signs so easily get distracted with other things. And I want to keep us focused that these signs have a point to them. And they are revealing to us who Jesus Christ is. If you miss that, or if you make anything else more important, you missed everything. They're revealing to us who Jesus Christ is and what he's come to do. Someone said something like this. You could say they are dramatizing in miniature The salvation that Christ came to bring. And every sign is doing that. Revealing who Christ is in the salvation that he came to bring. Every sign. So this should help us understand the big picture and the purpose for these signs. And that is that you might see who Christ is that you might believe who Christ is, and that you might be saved. Right? That's John 20, verse 31, that we've mentioned almost every week. (laughs) Right? The question is, will they get it? And, And that's what we keep coming to. Will they get the sign? Will they understand what Jesus is trying to show them? Will they see the sign? Will they get the point? Will they believe? And will they be saved? Now, if they have any sense to them, if they have any sense at all, they will see and they will believe. But that is the very problem, isn't it? 
We are spiritually blind. We are spiritually deaf. In fact, we are spiritually dead, aren't we? (laughs) And so we cannot see or hear what's right in front of us. It doesn't make any sense to us. We can't get it. We think, oh good, another meal. (laughs) If only I could have a lifelong of meals. Wouldn't that be great? And we miss everything. Right? Jesus could plainly say it and show it as he does here, and we can not see it and not hear it because we're blind and we're deaf to God and who he is. So the response of the people in this passage for the miracle is going to once again model for us what it looks like to not get it. They're going to show us who we are. They're going to show us how blind and how deaf we are. They're going to show us the reality of our hearts and our condition. And their response will be that of unbelief. Now after this miracle, and through the re- after the next miracle, and through the rest of the chapter, what we're going to see is Jesus is going to explain the reason why they do not believe. And he is going to help us understand the unbelief that's all around us. Why were they not believing? These were the people of God. They were supposed to be believing. Why were they not believing? And Jesus is going to expound this for us. And in fact, let me get ahead of you a little bit. Let me ex- explain to you, this, is, this whole chapter is a long chapter, but it's all tied together. The whole chapter is tied together. And at the very end of the chapter, what's going to happen is almost everyone is going to desert Jesus Christ. They're going to leave him and abandon him. And I want you to know ahead of time what's going to happen. This passage is about desertion. That's what it's about. That's the conclusion the people are going to have to the, in this chapter. Is they are not going to love Jesus and they're not going to want to follow him. And they're going to leave him. And only a remnant will be left. Doesn't this sound very familiar to us? Sounds kind of like the Old Testament, doesn't it? Where there's only a remnant of God's people. They will stay. Now, they won't completely get it. (laughs) They'll have a lot to understand. But they'll be tasting, and they'll be seeing, and they'll be understanding there's something about this Jesus that I can't leave. I can't leave. And they are going to grow. And they are going to learn. So we need to ask ourselves, do I get it? Every time we come to a miracle like this, every time we come to a passage like this, we need to ask ourselves, and sometimes we think we get it and we don't. And that's why we keep going over the same thing over and over again, because it's that important that we hear it again. It's that important that you examine your own heart and ask, am I beginning to understand who Jesus is? Am I hearing this accurately? Am I passing the test? As we will see today. And I pray by God's grace, that you might begin to hear and to see today or begin to hear and to see better than ever before so that you can worship God and that our worship will become louder and our praise will will become uh, more clear and, and louder and so that God will get the glory that he so deserves from his people. So let us begin by simply looking at the miraculous sign itself. So the setting of the miraculous sign is a solitary mountain 
a large crowd, and all of this at the time of the Passover celebration, verses 1 through 4. And it appears like Jesus is trying to get away from the crowd after he has spent much time ministering to people to be with his disciples and to minister to them and to be with his Father. And he has just spent a lot of time ministering. He's been very busy, so this should not be surprising that he wants to get away with his disciples. But what we see here is that Jesus cannot escape from the crowds. He can't get away from it. I almost picture Jesus walking this way, and there's this huge crowd following him. <laughs> you know, he's trying to get up to that mountain, and here's this huge crowd that just won't let him get away, <laughs> following him. And how could you blame them? How could you blame them? They witnessed Jesus heal the sick. That's why it says they were following him. They'd seen Jesus powerfully heal these sick people. Um, there's no other explanation but there's something about Jesus that is beyond human, <laughs> that is supernatural. They love the signs, right? And who would not be attracted to someone like that? And so really we need to ask, is it good or bad that they are attracted to these signs? And, and the answer is, well, neither. <laughs> it, it doesn't mean anything that they are attracted to him and following him because of the signs, necessarily. It can be good or it can be bad. But the fact that they're attracted to the signs in itself means nothing. You don't have to be born again to love the signs. Okay? Um, but I also want to mention that it is the time of the Passover. Right? And that's significant. It was the time where they celebrated their deliverance from captivity to Egypt. When God powerfully and mightily delivered them. Someone said, you can kind of compare it in some ways, um, very small ways, to the 4th of July, just in the excitement, right? It would have created a lot of national fervor among the people and excitement. And that's why there are so many people that are gathered here at this time. Because they had come together to celebrate the Passover. And they would have been excited. A lot of energy, <laughs> Right? So when Jesus sees the crowd, he thinks that this would be a great opportunity to give Philip a test. Why not, right? A test to see how well he understands who Jesus is. In verses 5 through 6. So lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to, to buy bread that these people may eat? He said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. So Jesus doesn't ask this question because he doesn't know what's going to happen. He, he already knows what he's going to do. He's already prepared and planned and knows the to total situation and exactly the outcome here. He knows what's going to happen. Um, the question is, what is this test that Jesus is giving? And the test was to see how Philip would respond to a situation where 5,000 plus people needed to be fed without adequate resources at hand. How does someone feed a great multitude of people in the wilderness where there are no, no resources to do that? How does someone do that? But this is not merely the absence of resources that's going to be tested here but the presence of Jesus, <laughs> that is the test. 
How well does he understand Jesus? That's the question. So the test is no resources plus Jesus equals what? (laughs) What does that equal? So this test is really about how well Philip understands who Jesus is. Does he recognize who Jesus is or does he not recognize who Jesus is? And the word test can be used in a couple different ways here, right? It can be a negative thing, um, tempting or soliciting someone to do evil, but that's not the way it's meant here, (laughs) right? It can also be used in a neutral way, such as to expose what's already there, to test someone's heart and to see what's there. And that's the way it's used here. So the disciples acknowledge the greatness of the problem in verses 7 through 9. Philip, you might say, is the realist here, isn't he? He expresses the great amount that would be required to buy enough bread to feed so many people. And he says, it would be over 800 denarii. And apparently, one denarii was a day's wages. So 200 denarii is equivalent to eight months of wages. Yeah, something like that. (laughs) So this amount of money could conceivably provide for a whole family in eight months. Possibly. Unless you had growing boys, then it would mean a lot more, I guess. But Philip says that the crowd was so large that even eight months of wages would not be enough to give them even a bite of food. So what Philip says here can't be denied. He is realistically looking at the situation from a human standpoint. Even if they had enough money, you need to ask as well, where would they get the bread from? (laughs) You know? Now, Andrew is quite resourceful. He has found five loaves and two fish. Good for Andrew. (laughs) But that's almost a joke, isn't it? In comparison to the need, what good would that do? That's exactly the right response. What good will that do? (laughs) Five loaves and two fish. Now, think about this. That would mean for every 1,000 men, they would get one loaf of bread, right? And imagine these are grown men. What would one loaf of bread for 1,000 people do for anybody? (laughs) Clearly, the reason that this is mentioned is to magnify the greatness of the miracle. All of this is preparing us. It's magnifying. It's it's amplifying the greatness of the miracle that we're about to see. But I want you to see that neither Philip nor Andrew take into account who is with them. That Jesus is adequate for the problem they are facing if he would choose to do something about it. And neither of them take into account who Jesus is. They are caught up in realistic solutions, completely unaware that Jesus, the creator of the heavens and the earth, (laughs) almighty God, is with them. And isn't this the way many of us live our lives? We claim to live by faith in the almighty God, the creator of the universe, but we don't take into account that Jesus is is with us. Like Philip and Andrew, we look at the human problems that we face and think of human solutions that are all around us, and we despair, thinking, what good will that do? 
what difference will this make in my situation? And frankly, our situations pale oftentimes in comparison to what the rest of the world is facing. How little faith do we have? So what does Jesus do? He puts on display who he is through performing this incredible, miraculous sign. Someone said it this way. He provides a buffet in the wilderness. In verses 10 through 11. And actually, in these verses, for the first time, we're told the size of the crowd. And it says 5,000 men. And the word for men is particularly the gender men <laughs> there. And so some have, have guessed that it could have been upward to 20,000 people there. Counting the women and children. But regardless, there were a lot of people, that's for sure. So Jesus prays before the meal, proving that we should pray before our meals. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. That's not the point there. But what happens after Jesus prays for the food? What we see is a miracle. An incredible miracle. A buffet of food. Everyone eats their fill as much as they want until they are satisfied. And I want you to see that this is no sleight of hand. This is no hocus pocus that needed to be spoken. Um, no fanfare. Just an incredible miracle that Jesus performs. And what's important to see here is that Jesus does not merely provide for the people, but he provides abundantly. He provides extravagantly. More than enough. In verses 12 through 13, just listen to these words and think about the message that's being communicated here about Jesus' ability to provide. All right? And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments that the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. 12 baskets full. So we see that there is an abundance left over of food, an extravagant amount of food left over. Jesus lavishly provides for the needs of his people. And he exceeds all expectations. No one would ever have expected for Jesus to do anything like this. This is what it means in Ephesians 3 verse 20 when Paul prays and says, Jesus is able to give above and beyond what anyone could ever ask or think. Is that true? Well, absolutely. We can expect that Jesus will provide above and beyond whatever we can imagine, and even more than we could ask him for. What an incredible, what an incredible thought when you think about it. Your faith will one day be validated, and you will be amazed, even speechless, at God's ability to provide and his goodness. So here Jesus proves that he is more than enough to supply for the needs of his people, that he is not stingy with his resources, but rather infinitely benevolent. He loves to give. He is more than enough. So what is the significance of this miracle? How does this miracle show us who Jesus is and what he came to do? So I want to begin by looking at a hint at what this miracle is telling us. 
that we see all the way back at the beginning when we are told that these events took place at the Passover time. And I don't believe we're told that these events took place at the Passover time for chronological reasons so that we could place this at the time of the year. I'm, I mean, it might be helpful to do that, but I think the point is theological. <laughs> I think the point is theological here to help us understand the situation better. The Passover was a time where people would celebrate their deliverance from Egypt. We already said that. And so they would gather together to celebrate God's great deliverance of his people. With his mighty hand, he single-handedly delivered them and provided for them, right? Throughout their wilderness wanderings. Not only from captivity, but also through 40 years of wandering. He took care of them and provided for them. And here Jesus was demonstrating that he came to bring a far greater deliverance than that. He had a greater deliverance that he was going to bring. He had a greater provision that he was going to give for his people. He was going to take care of them. He was going to provide for them. And it was much greater than anything that happened before that. The significance of the miracle can be understood through a comparison between Moses and Jesus. That Jesus is far greater than Moses. That he is not only greater than Moses, but he's far greater than him. Just as Moses led a crowd from slavery to the promised land, providing for their needs the whole way, so Jesus here demonstrates that he has come to lead a crowd from slavery to sin into the promised land through providing for their needs. And only here we see that Jesus came to bring a far greater deliverance. That's what we see here. A far greater deliverance. He is everything that they need. But let's be more specific. The significance of this miracle can be understood through seeing Jesus himself as the greater provider. The greater provider and the greater provision through the feeding of the 5,000 plus with bread from heaven. Jesus is not only the greater provider for his people, but he is the provision. He is the bread from heaven. <laughs> That's what Jesus is going to say in the discourse. He's going to explain that he is the bread from heaven. Now this should prompt, this provision should prompt the people to think of Moses' role in providing manna for them on the way to the promised land. According to one estimation, the size of the nation could very well have been between one and two million people. And one of the problems with so many people is how are they going to eat? <laughs> how are they going to be sustained through the wilderness wanderings? Right? You can't take food with you. You can't plant things and then take it with you and have them grow as you're traveling through the wilderness. So God literally provided a meal through the desert wanderings every day except for the seventh day for 40 years. And I don't know if you've ever really thought about that before. 40 years every single day having a meal falling from heaven to sustain you through the wilderness wanderings. That is incredible. 
But here Jesus shows and he displays to providing the bread that he is greater than Moses and he has a greater provision than Moses provided for them from heaven to give to them. If that was a great miracle, then how much greater is the miracle that Jesus has come to bring? He shows us that he is the true bread from heaven through which you can have life. He is the greater manna, the bread that has come into the world. And he preserves and feeds his people. Jesus meets our every need with his heavenly provision. The miracle also displays the superior character of Jesus. Notice his zeal and his compassion here. His zeal to minister to the people. His compassion for their needs. He cares about them and he cares about their greater need. And he has such a humble disposition. He joins them in their lowly position. He is not far away, but near and quick to help his people in their need. And we see his power and his ability to save. He has all the resources at hand that we will ever need. And so the miracle displays Jesus to be the unique Son of God. That's what it shows us. He is above nature, the Creator Himself, God incarnate, who has come to us. And so what is required of us here, to under, if we understand the sign, is to come to him as he is, to believe in him as he is. And the Bible is absolutely clear. We must believe in Jesus as our Lord and our Savior, which means simply to come to him as he is based on what he has done. And there is no other way to be saved. But in Christ Jesus, we have all the resources of God. We lack nothing forever if we're in Christ Jesus. So what is their response to the sign? Did they get it? Did they pass the test? Well, you can see their response in verses 14 through 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And then we read, they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. So what do the people see about Jesus from the sign? Well, they see Jesus is the expected prophet who, has come, who, who was to come into the world. And he has come. They see that. And they're probably referring to Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. Where Moses said, there's a prophet like me who's coming, you must listen to him. So the promise is that there would be a prophet like Moses who would come, and they're like, this must be him. And they even see Jesus as king, who is to come and deliver him. They not only see him as the prophet, but also the king. And that is great, isn't it? What a great thing. Right? Maybe? Maybe not? Well, as far as the titles go, they're right. They have every reason to think of this way, Jesus in this way. But does this mean they get it? And the answer is no, <laughs> not at all. Not if Jesus responds to their attempt to make him king has anything to say about it. Jesus' response to their actions indicate that they don't get it at all. Notice that what Jesus does in verse 15 is he withdraws again to the mountain by himself. 
When he sees what's going on, he withdraws to the mountain by himself. You see, when people approach Jesus in the wrong way, like they do here, Jesus withdraws from them. Jesus leaves. Jesus will not be approached the way they approach him here. There is something horribly wrong with the way they understood and approached Jesus. Meaning that Jesus does not accept this kind of worship and this kind of praise. So what's the problem? The problem is they think that Jesus is just another prophet like Moses. And he's not just another prophet like Moses. He's greater than Moses. He is not just the giver of physical food. (laughs) He is the giver of eternal life. The food that lasts forever. Jesus came to give his own life for their sins as bread to sustain them. And they must eat of that bread. (laughs) They must believe in him. That's what it means to eat, to believe in him if they're going to live for eternity. He satisfies us for eternity by giving us himself. He is greater than Moses as much as God is greater than Moses. As one person said. So yes, Jesus is the prophet, but he is not the prophet they think he is. The problem is also that they think of Jesus as a king according to earthly terms. They wanted a king to free them from Roman oppression, just like God delivered Israel from Egypt, right? They wanted victory over Rome. And Jesus was not interested in giving them victory over Rome. Jesus came to give them victory over a greater enemy, over sin, over Satan, and over the world. Jesus came to win their hearts and satisfy their souls for eternity. He came to win them and defeat their enemies that stood against them. That is the king we want, and that is the king he is. And he will not be received any other way. So they had the right title for Jesus as king, but they failed to understand what kind of king he was and the type of king they needed. They wanted a type of liberation, but not the type of liberation he came to bring. They wanted a liberator, but not the type of liberator that he was. So yes, I am the king, says Jesus, but not the king you think I am, and not the king you want. Now Jesus explained the type of king he was to Pilate, didn't he? In John 18, verses 33 through 38, I'll just read the last few verses, 37 through 38. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And really, when you look at it, the fact that they wanted to force Jesus to be king tells us the type of king they wanted, doesn't it? They wanted a puppet king, right? They wanted someone to do what they wanted him to do. You you know what a puppet king is, right? Someone takes over a kingdom, and then they put in a king who will do exactly what they want, just like a puppet. They would follow such a king to death. They would. I mean, you see this in churches today, don't you? Where everyone is praising at the top of their voices, but you wonder, what are they praising? They would love that king. They would rejoice in that king. You will gather a lot of people to celebrate that type of king that they wanted. 
They get quite a crowd for that king. Jesus said that this is exactly what they do in John 5, verse 43. Do you remember from last week? I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Right? you receive someone else who comes like you, but you won't receive me. The same is true today. You can get a great dedicated crowd to follow another king in the name of Jesus. We are okay with Jesus as long as he doesn't do or say what we don't like. If he does, we change or interpret his words to say something different so that he follows our own ideas. So this means it's very possible to be really excited about Jesus, even worship a Jesus, but not be excited about or worship the real Jesus. It is possible to believe in Jesus as Savior and King, but to be believing a different Savior and King than he really is. It's possible, for instance, to love his gifts, but not love the giver. To want what he has to offer, but not want him. One man described it this way, there's a great difference between wanting the bread that Jesus gives and the bread that Jesus is. And so Jesus will rebuke them later on in this passage for this very reason. Listen to what he says. You are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're seeking me for the wrong reasons, is what he says. And then he says this, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Doesn't that just describe exactly the problem right there? How many today worship Jesus of their own devising, a Jesus of their own making? Sadly, many who fill pews today are more concerned about earthly happiness, financial stability, food, earthly success, marriages, kids, appetites that they want filled, so many different things rather than a Savior who came to deliver His people from their sins, which is the real problem, isn't it? And that's what we really need. They might use all the right terms, prophet and king, but they don't really see or know the true prophet and true king. And John Piper described these people, and I think he nailed it right on the head. He said, these are people who have bowed themselves to the health and wealth gospel of our day and age. Those are the people who do not want him, but want his gifts. And so when he doesn't give them what they want, when they don't get what they want out of Jesus, they leave him and abandon him. And that's exactly what's going to happen at the end of this chapter. Jesus has already explained to us what these people are like in chapter 2, verse 23 to 24. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, in his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. In other words, we said this before, he didn't trust their trusting in him. (laughs) He didn't trust their belief. Jesus does not believe in their belief. This is the same type of faith that characterized those who were part of the first exodus, wasn't it? Remember, they were delivered from Egypt? And immediately, what do they do? And this characterizes people who think this way. They immediately grumble When God doesn't provide for him, God put them to the test. Sort of like what he did to Philip here. God put them to the test. And what do they do? They grumble. They did not see God. They failed to see him, even though they were delivered through the water. 
Even though the water parted and they passed right through it, they failed to see him and to understand him. This is the reason why they leave him at the end of this passage. It's not real. It's not the real thing. They are very similar to their fathers. Here we see not so much the people's desertion of Jesus. We'll see that later. But we see what Jesus does when people try to approach him the wrong way. He withdraws. Jesus will have nothing to do with worship that is conducted on man's terms. He has a heavenly agenda and not an earthly agenda. Such a worship is a worship that does not honor God and will be condemned on the last day. So my question for you is this. Do you pass the test? Do you believe in the real Jesus? Do you receive him as he has come? Do you eat of him? (laughs) Do you eat of the bread that has come from heaven by believing in him and trusting in him? as he says he is? Or do you believe in the American Jesus who is only as good as he makes your life better and fits on your own terms in your own agenda? And we often treat the church the same way, don't we? Only as good as it meets our needs. That's the McDonald's mentality. You should be going to McDonald's rather than church if that's the way you think. It is often the moment of need of testing that reveals what we really believe, isn't it? It's when we need a miracle, when things are not working out, that really believes, that really reveals what we think about Jesus. And this is really the heart of all men, isn't it? This is our natural state, and and praise God that he reveals it. Praise God that he reveals it over and over again, that we have so much to grow. We do not see Jesus as clearly as we should, and we need to ask God to show himself to us. Maybe you thought you believed, but now you see that you don't. And if that's the case, praise God. I do a lot of counseling trying to convince people exactly where they're at, because they think they believe sometimes, and they really don't. And they need to know that they're not where they think they are before it's possible for them to be saved. And so it sounds mean, it sounds unloving, but it's the best thing they can hear if that's where they're at. We have done a lot of comforting today when people should not be comforted. If this is you, then there is hope for you while you breathe. You need to have eyes to see the glory of Jesus, of Jesus Christ. And God can do that. That's what he loves to do. Ask him to help you to see him as the all-satisfying bread from heaven. Jesus came to meet our appetites by giving us new, appropriate appetites. Ask him to help you to see him clearly and to love him as he is. And if you see Jesus, however imperfectly, you will follow him. And to the degree you see him, you will follow him. So let me challenge you. Let me challenge you to look at Jesus. Let's see him afresh. Let's see him anew. Let's understand him this week. Let's read about him and let's digest him because that's what's going to give us the strength to live for him. And then you will sing. (laughs) You will sing. If you even begin to taste who Jesus is, you will sing. You will sing with the former slave trader, John Newton. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see.
there are some truths that cannot be accurately communicated without song, right? So we will sing if we get this. Let's pray. Dear Father, our hearts so badly want to sing. Lord, we want to sing, but there is nothing to sing about. Lord, this world is empty and it leaves us moaning and groaning and empty. Lord, we look inside of ourselves, we look for something to make us feel better, and all we do is see emptiness and death and groaning. But God, when we see you, when our eyes are opened to see you for the first time, Lord, we start singing. And Lord, I pray that you would cause us to be a singing people this week. I pray that we would rejoice in our God. What a great Savior you are. What a great salvation you have brought. You have abundantly, extravagantly, more than we could ever ask or imagine, brought to us a salvation that we needed. And I pray that we would see you that way. Lord, turn our eyes off of the worthless things of this world, not to make us miserable, but to cause us to truly live. Lord, this world is miserable, but in you there is life. Give us life this week. Help us to really live, and help us to speak the words of life everywhere we go. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. 